through two readings today. Uh, the first is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting at verse 11. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven uh, to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the second reading from Romans 10, starting at verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Good morning. Please take your seats. I'm not vertically challenged, but I'm not as tall as Dan is, so I need to get myself in order here. Um, ladies, before you go, please will you see Jo? She'll be at the back. Um, she's the pretty one. Um, with some flowers. It's not a flower stall, um, but it's an opportunity for us just to honour you. Um, not just mums, but every woman in the church is a flower for you. Um, please take one of those before you leave this morning. In the centre of France, southern, southern central France, there is a walled and a mountainous and a remote village called Le Chambon. That's as good as my French gets. Thank you. Le Chambon uh, is a very kind of an 
iniquitous place. No one knows that it's there, but it's very famous because in World War II it did something remarkable. In World War II, when Nazi Germany was doing its best to get rid of every Jew in uh, Western Europe, the Schambon became a refuge for people in grave danger. And so over the duration of the war, the Schambon housed 3,000 to 5,000 uh, Jewish refugees. For the duration of the war, under great threat to their own lives, there was great difficulty, there was less resources to go around because it was the war. But the Le Chambon, this remote mountainous village in uh, southern central uh, France, was this location where the, of a refuge of safety, we could say. But what was interesting to me, as I found out recently, was uh, after the war had come to a peaceful conclusion, one of the people who found refuge in this uh, remote place went back and asked the Christian community, the evangelical Christian community, why did you do that for us? Why did you take the risk? Why did you pay the cost? Why did you provide a refuge for us? And uh, you would have thought it would be because they're braver than the other French people, because it was full of the French resistance, because they didn't like Germany. But one of the uh, people that survived the war went back and found out something remarkable. Here's what they said. After the war, a Jewish adult who was kept alive there as a child returned and interviewed his protectors about the reasons for taking such risky actions on his behalf. He was trying to figure out what their secret was. And to his surprise, one after the other just shrugged their shoulders, not because they were just French. They shrugged their shoulders literally and said it seemed to be an obvious implication of their faith in Jesus. They had no dramatic explanations. Their actions stemmed from the very centre of their embrace of the gospel, of the sacrificial love of Jesus, and it was enough. That was the key. They weren't bigger, they weren't stronger, they didn't have better resources. Simply, they had embraced the gospel of the sacrificial love of Jesus, and it was enough. It's what motivated their actions, it's what fueled their sacrificial uh, generosity, it's what gave them courage and a bit of a backbone. They understood the gospel in its simplest form. Jesus came from heaven to earth, he died for sinful people, he came and f uh, founded, as it were, in the gospel, in faith in his son that we've read about and sung about. A place of safety, he provides all the resources, but the gospel is a message of rescue and of redemption. And this little group of French evangelical Christians grasped this and it changed the pattern of their behaviour in the middle of the war. So that uh, in 1990, the state of Israel said, this village is righteous among the nations. The way they've conducted themselves is just miraculous. What's the what's this raison d'etre? What's their reason for living? It's the gospel. If Jesus did that for us, said the French Christians, shouldn't we rescue other people? If Jesus was that generous for us, if he died for us, shouldn't we put our lives on the line for people who are in grave peril and danger? It was just a shrug of the shoulders, not just because they're French Christians, but because it's a logical explanation and an outworking of the gospel. It's so, it's so simple. And that's what is absolutely fascinating about this passage. In Europe, everybody knew the gospel. Everybody saw a cru crucifix hanging around someone's necks, especially in Western Europe, even in the war. Everybody had churches in the centre of their towns in the 1940s. 
But why is it that this French group of Christians grasped the simplicity of the gospel and it changed their lives? So that three to 5,000 extra people were crammed into this little mountain enclave. The gospel is so simple, it's difficult. It's so simple that it gets complex. But these people in France and these people that Moses is speaking to, Moses wants them to grasp the difficult simplicity of the gospel, this kind of deceptive ordinariness of the gospel. And so Moses says a few things. Look at what he says in verse 14. I want us to think about, if you want a personal relationship with Jesus, you need to grasp the deceptive ordinariness of the gospel. They shrugged their shoulders, just something we had to do because we grasped the gospel. But the gospel, verse 14, point number one, is deceptively ordinary. What do I mean? What does Moses say? Look at what Moses says in verse 14. He says, if you want to become a Christian, and even if you are a Christian, you need to grasp the reality that God is, verse 14, near you. What does that mean? Look at verse 12. God is not up in heaven, so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. God is near you, Moses says. Now, it struck me as I scratched my head about what this passage means this week and its deceptive ordinariness, that in ancient cultures there was a pattern of belief that the gods were remote and far away. The gods were distant and set apart. The gods were capricious. And there was in many old stories, whether you think of a Beowulf or whether you think further back, the gods were remote and there was a divine body of knowledge there was a spirituality, there was truths about the secrets of the new universe, there was divine wisdom that was far away and remote and no one could get to it. But in these old stories and legends, there is often a person, a man or woman, who works hard, who is superior, who is the hero or heroine, and they do all they can, they go on a quest to get to the gods, if they can, and to accrue this knowledge. They have visions, they have truths that are imparted to them by divine beings. They go and they go on quests and journeys and they have to uh, enter into a kind of council with the divine and they receive truth and then they can send it to other people and disseminate it to other people. Moses has says that's absolute rot. You don't need to do that. Moses has none of it and says you do not have to go up to God. God has come down to you. That's the gospel. There is not a hidden body of knowledge somewhere just beyond your reach. God is near to you. There is not a hidden reality that you need to have be a certain person to accrue. There is not a, uh, a method of spirituality where you empty your brain and then God will somehow fill it. God is near to you. It says, God, in the highest heavens, the whole of Deuteronomy has said this, the highest heavens cannot contain his glory and majesty, God has come down, he's dwelt in his power and authority and in the fire on the top of Mount Sinai. Remember all the way back in chapter 5. God has come down to you. God has revealed his glory and majestic nature and splendor to you. God is near to you, Moses says. The secret of the universe are close to you. They're not in a hidden order of spirituality. They're not in the Ganges River where you have to go and wash. They're not at the end of the rainbow that only some people can find and discover. God is near to you. And he's come down and he's revealed his glory to you. And he's this close. He's this close and this accessible in two ways. He's near to you. God is physically accessible. 
You know, I went to Manchester recently. It was sunny. It kind of blew my socks off, really. It's never sunny in Manchester. But as I got into the uh, Radisson Park Inn Hotel, there was the mystery of the universe by the side of my bed, physically accessible. What do I mean? It's a Gideon's Bible. The Gideon's Bible shows me that God is near to me. I don't have to go elsewhere in the universe. I don't have to jump on a plane and go to a holy site. I need to open this book that's one of the most physically accessible books in the whole of the universe. You can click on the internet and you can get access to this book. You can go to that dusty red uh, paperback book that's on your shelf from when you were younger. And the Gideons gave you a New Testament and Psalms when you were at school. God is near to you, says Moses, in a physical way. You open the Bible and the mysteries of the universe are explained. The meaning of the universe explained. God does not need to be found somewhere else. God is revealed in the person of Jesus on the pages of this book. It's physically accessible. Point number two, though, it's also intellectually accessible. There are some hard teachings in the Bible. There are some big words in the Bible. People who write about the Bible use incredibly big words. But actually, not only is the truth of God physically accessible in a book or on an electronic screen, it's also intellectually accessible. What do I mean? Boys and girls, 100 yards that way, are being explained the truth of this book. That God is near to them too. Little people, boys and girls, can become Christians as God rescues them when they're young. Older people with highlights and grey hairs and, excuse me, silver highlights, salt and pepper as it's called. We can understand the Bible too. People who are old of age, they can understand the Bible too. Because it's physically accessible, it's in the pages of this book. God is near to us. But it's also intellectually accessible. You don't have to go and study a PhD to understand who God is. God revealed himself in the pages of this book. God has revealed himself on the dusty streets of Jerusalem, physically and intellectually accessible. So what's the problem? The problem is that there is a deceptive ordinariness to the gospel. There is a man called Karl Barth. He's had one of the biggest heads ever in terms of brain, not literally a big head, but literally a big brain. He was asked, what is the Bible all about? He was a theologian. He wrote tons of books about God. Karl Barth said this. This is what the Bible is about. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. There it is. This is all his learning. All his books boiled down to one sentence. Let me put it in another way from the Bible itself. You're saved by God's grace. It's that ordinary. There's a deceptiveness to us. So what's the problem? The problem is, it looks so easy that it becomes difficult. It becomes so, it's so simple that God has shown his love to us that you think, that can't be it. There must be a catch. It's so ordinary. In the 1740s, there were a group of men who were meeting in London. They were part of the Church of England. They were Christians, but they didn't grasp the gospel. They were preachers and teachers, but they didn't grasp the gospel fully, which is a deep concern to me. But they gathered together in central London, and they started to read a book by a man called Martin Luther. He, he wrote a book about a book in the Bible called Galatians. And in over successive uh, nights, in a period of about a week or so, a number of them became Christians by God's grace. There's a man called John Wesley. He went on and he began a group of churches called the Methodist churches. 
He had a brother called Charles. He became a Christian the next night. He wrote loads and loads of hymns. But there's another man who I read of this week called William Holland. He wrote some stuff down because he became a Christian that night too. He says, Mr. Charles Wesley read this book by Martin Luther. Mr. Charles Wesley read it aloud at the place where Luther said, what have we then nothing to do? No, nothing but only to accept him. Who of God is made unto us? Who becomes for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption? Some long words there. Hearing those words, there came such a power over me as I cannot well imagine and describe. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. When afterwards I went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. What happened? He grasped the simplicity and power of the grace of God, or rather, God gripped him again. It's the deceptive ordinariness of the gospel. God has come to rescue you and me. God comes to save sinners. What's the Bible all about? It's about the grace of God to rescue and save sinners. Friends, if you are exploring Christianity, if you're new amongst us, it's great that you're here. But one of the difficult things you've got to grasp is this. The gospel is very, very simple. You and I are big sinners. We're big rebels, but God is a great saviour. That's the gospel. Christian friend, if you think you understand the gospel, beware. There is a deceptive ordinariness to it. You'll never move past it. You never move beyond it. God has come to save sinners. It's, a, it's difficulty, is it simplicity, so that boys and girls can understand it. And it's simplicity, well, that becomes its difficulty if you switch it around the other way. But there is a deceptive ordinariness to the gospel. But that's not all. Look at verse 11. There is, um, when we understand its simplicity, there is a threat, a, th a threatening graciousness, a threatening graciousness to the gospel. It says that in verse 11. Look in verse 11 with me. Moses says, Now what am I commanding you today? It's not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not beyond the sea so that you have to ask, Who shall cross the sea to get it? Now I've alluded to this already. Ancient people had this idea that God was somewhere beyond the rainbow. That uh, for the gods to be engaged with, you need to do something heroic and something um, great and significant. And it got me thinking about something you watched on TV just before Christmas. Um, me being me, I am passionate about my children understanding old films as long as they're good ones. So there is a film in 1963 called Jason and the Argonauts that I remember watching as a little kid. I recorded this thing and the children groaned and Joe groaned and I said, give it 10 minutes. Just watch the first 10 minutes. If you don't like it, we'll just delete it and we'll watch something else that's not very good um, and so we started to watch it and the kids were gripped I was thrilled because I'm proud um, and the kids were gripped by the clunkiness no CGI but of the animation they were little stick people and they were big models of bad people and things but the whole film of Jason and the Argonauts is about a quest it's about a heroic person that has to go and deal with the gods because he's about to lose his kingdom and he has to go beyond the sea. He has to defeat big metal-looking people. He has to defeat and do heroic and, and things. His life is on the line again and again. And Jason and the Argonauts is about a quest. 
other films like Indiana Jones, if you're about 40, you can remember that. If you're about 30 or 20, think of Lord of the Rings. It's quest stories about ordinary people showing themselves to be heroic. It's a quest about men and women doing something that is big and different, that makes them stand above other people. It's about saving yourself, really. And here comes Moses, and he says, God is near to you. And what's so interesting is this phrase in verse 11 and verse 14. You don't have to go over the sea to get to God. You don't have to go to the sea to get your salvation or to get rescued. Verse 14, the word is near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. The heart is where you believe. The lips are where you confess or profess truth that you believe in. So what's going on here? Moses is saying, God is near to you. You don't need to go over the sea on a quest to get it. That means... Being rescued by God, salvation, being right with God is not something you achieve by a quest, by going on a journey, by showing your prowess, by puffing out your chest, by slaying a dragon. Salvation is not something you achieve, it's something you receive. God is near to you. Get that? Salvation is not something you achieve yourself by showing your prowess and strength and might. It's something you receive. And that's the problem. That's the threatening graciousness of God. God has come to us, but all too often we want to show our prowess and we want to show our strength and say, well, no, no, we can come to you on our terms. Verse 14, the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. If you want the perfect example of this in the Bible, I think it's in 2 Kings 5 in the story of Naaman. There's threatening graciousness. God has said it's not something you achieve, it's something you receive. Naaman was a king. Um, sorry, rather, Naaman was a general in the army, a Syrian general, and he goes on a quest because he is covered from head to toe in leprosy. And he goes with all the resources of a quest. We can see that he's going to go to the gods, as it were, because he's taking with him a sword, he's got a letter from the king, he's got ten changes of clothes, he's got a bucket load of money. He's got all the resources he needs to go and to get himself sorted out before the days of the NHS. He hears of a man of God who has power and authority to take away his leprosy. So he says, I will go to him, and because of my standing as a general in the Syrian army, you have to save me. You owe me. I will show you my prowess, and I will show you that I stand head and shoulders above other people. I will show my strength. So he goes on this quest, and before he gets to Elisha, Elisha hears of him and sends one of his servants to Naaman to say, this is what you can do. Go wash in the Jordan River. And at this point, if it was a cartoon, there would be steam coming from uh, his nostrils and there would be the red kind of Tom and Jerry-ness would be going from toe to head. He's fuming because he's saying, no, no, no. Don't you know who I am? I am a man who leads men. I am someone of standing. I have resources so that I can save myself. You don't come to me. You don't rescue me. And one of his servants says, Master, Master, if you were told by the prophet to do some great deed, wouldn't you have done it? And that's the key. There is a threatening graciousness to God's economy of us being saved by his son that is not about us. We want to rescue ourselves. 
We want to save ourselves. I am proud to the hilt of the things that I can do, so God, you owe me. And that's just where Naaman was. Naaman was saying, look at what I can do. Look at the resources I've had. Elisha, you owe me. And you're telling me to go and wash where ordinary people do? So it's not about me, it's about what God can do? I don't want a part of it. I want to rescue myself. I want to show my prowess. I want to prove to you that I believe that salvation is achieved. I don't want it to be received. So there's a threatening graciousness that modern people struggle with, that uh, old people struggle with, in terms of ancient people struggle with, that postmodern people struggle with, that that is God says. Salvation is received. It is not achieved. It's a threat to us because it's so simple, because of our pride. But God's grace says, you are saved by grace and grace alone. There's nothing you can do to rescue yourself because salvation is received, it's not achieved. Thirdly, finally, look at this uh, unimaginable promise. Look at this unimaginable promise. Look at the, the last part of this passage seems to throw us. It's nice to look at the beginning of this passage and think that it's all about grace. But then we get to the last part, beginning of verse 17, and it seems to contradict what Moses has just said. I wonder if that struck you. Verse 17. If your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, then I declare to you this day, you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death Blessings and curses, choose life. Or else all these curses will come upon you. It's easier to speak on the first part of the passage rather than this, but we need to consider them together. All through the book of Deuteronomy, these themes have been coming through like waves to us. We see what we're supposed to do. We've seen and Moses has told us that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We're to give God our best. We're to love our neighbours. We're supposed to treat God in a certain way. We're not supposed to do some things. We're supposed to do other things. And every time we see this word life appear, it's about eternal life. It's about spiritual life. And Moses has said in a whole host of different ways, here's eternal life and here's how you get it. You get it through obeying God by putting him first, by honouring him, by loving him with every fibre of your being and that reality teach to your children, Deuteronomy 6. And Moses is saying, as it were, your obedience would be your life, and it could be your life, but because it can't be your life, because you're not going to keep it, you're not going to keep the commandments, you're not going to do what God says, because you can't keep it yourself, the Lord will be your life. Here is the way of obedience that if you were to keep it completely, if you were to obey God, if you were to love your fellow man, if you were to keep the Ten Commandments, then this could be your life. But as you're not going to be able to keep your life, the Lord will be your life and he will give you life. It says here in um, the end of this passage, the Lord himself will be your life. And you say, well, which one is it, Moses? Is it a way of obedience where we get eternal life by our own strength and honour? It's something that we can achieve or is it something we receive? Is there a contradiction? And Paul, the second reading, in your service sheet, in Romans 10, 
takes Moses' exact words and rubs in the same truth. Who is it? Do we achieve salvation? Do we receive salvation? Moses and Paul help us out here. In Romans 10, Paul comes to this passage and says this. Look at verse 4. He's interpreting the words of Moses, but applying them to Jesus. Verse 4 of Romans 10. Paul says, Christ is the end of the law as a means of righteousness for everyone who believes. Now about this righteousness that comes through faith, Moses has said, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? For that would bring Christ down. And he says, do not say, who will descend into the deep? That would be to bring Christ up from the abyss. But what does he say? Verse 8, Paul says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaimed, that if you confess with your mouth, verse 9, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you hear that? Paul is saying what Moses is saying. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The law still has a place, as we've seen again and again, to please God, to change your life, to reprogram your priorities, to order how you use your money and resources and your time, to show you how you are to pursue justice for the nations, not just look after your own uh, concerns. But it is not a means for you to stand accepted before God. Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The law is not how you stand accepted and approved before God, because you'll never be able to keep it. Just try. And so God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, who has come to end the law for righteousness' sake. What does that mean? Paul is saying what Moses is saying, you don't have to go into heaven through your own efforts, because you won't, so Jesus has come down from heaven. Paul is saying, Moses is saying, you don't have to go over the sea to show off your prowess, to show off your achievement. You don't have to go on a quest to show God that you are worthy of being saved because Jesus went into the depths of the sea. It tells of the journey of the quest, the ultimate quest, that's not make-believe like Jason and the Argonauts. It's not a good story like Lord of the Rings. It's not a good film, kind of, like Raiders of the Lost Ark and those sorts of pictures as well. The message of the gospel is this. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, went on the ultimate quest. He went down into the depths of the sea, but even further still, he went into the depths of hell for you and for me. Jesus Christ didn't face a dragon or a sea monster or a big uh, ogre. He didn't see a big person made of metal with an Achilles heel. Jesus Christ took upon himself all the punishment that you and I deserve. It's the message of Easter. It's the ultimate quest story that all the others are just a mere shadow of. But here's the difference. Jesus Christ went on this quest and he won. Jesus Christ went on this quest and he not only did he win, what did he win? Not a golden fleece, he won eternal life. He won righteousness for you and for me. He won forgiveness for you and for me by going into the depths, the depths not of the sea, but the depths of hell itself. He took upon all the forces, all the evil forces of hell, all the punishment from his father for your sins and my sins, and he stood. He went on a quest and he won, and now he has eternal life to give. And it's different from every other quest story that you'll read, every other quest story that you can watch, 
because it's not self-serving. It's not self-justifying. This is the ultimate rescue. And this is why it's different from all the other pictures and all the other films and stories that you can read. There's a Christian poet that I came across this week called Edward Shalito. He wrote these very helpful words. Meditate on these, please. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to your throne. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And there's no God in any other religion that has wounds, but you alone. Friends, there's a deceptive ordinariness of the gospel message that is like a huge hurdle that we need to overcome. That Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You never move beyond it. But some of us, if we're looking at the Christian faith for the first time, can stumble at that hurdle, saying that's too simple for me. It's not too simple, it's true. And friends, if you're a Christian, meditate on this truth as we journey before Easter and towards Easter. There's no other God in any other religion that has wounds but you alone. Jesus Christ went on the ultimate quest for the glory of his Father, for the renown and fame of his Father, and to rescue you. He didn't cross the sea, he went down into the depths of hell and was raised on the third day in victory and power. It wasn't self-serving or self-justifying, but it was the ultimate rescue plan. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that wonderful truth that when we open the Bible, you are near to us. If we're Christians, you are in our hearts by your spirit. You live within us, and that's a remarkable truth. Father, I do pray for us as Christian friends here this morning that we would never move beyond the simplicity of the gospel. I do pray also for friends that are not yet Christians that you would help us to model a graciousness that there is in the threat of the gospel that we need to lay our deadly doing down at your feet. We need to lay aside our pride and to grasp the grace that you've shown to us in the cross of Jesus. Please help us to see that salvation is received. It is not achieved unless it's achieved by Jesus' quest for us, the eternal quest of journeying from the throne room of heaven to earth and from earth to the cross and from the cross to the grave and from the grave to the sky. Father, thank you for the truth, the complex truth, and yet the simple truth that Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible has revealed it as true. Amen.